What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Cheeky Midweeky, where our goal here is to make strength and conditioning not boring. And this week's guest, all right, we have Jason, and we are going to talk about a topic that is near and dear to a lot of strength coaches' heart, um, ACL injuries, knee injuries. Like, this is something where a lot of coaches, they don't want to hear those three letters. And my man here is going to drop some knowledge on us. I got my pens. I got my notepad. I'm ready to listen up. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's a Thursday morning right now. We're in uh, spring season right now, uh, you know, postseason play for some of our Olympic sport athletes uh, coming up here over the next couple of weeks, so it's an exciting time. But, yeah, like you, like you said, I uh, want to chat a, a bit about some of the ACL work uh, that I've done previously and some of my previous stops, and then also to uh, talk more uh, on a philosophical level about, you know, kind of our thoughts of, of this injury over the last, in 20, 25 years, kind of where we were initially in the mid 2000s and then kind of where we're progressing and where I kind of see uh, ACL injuries from a, a risk mitigation standpoint and now how that can also be some helpful information to, to some of the practitioners in the field, whether that be strength conditioning, sports medicine, any other, any sort of folks that may, may deal with this injury. Because unfortunately, if you go back and start looking at, you know, injury prevalence, things like that, like the injury rates have not really uh, declined at all over the last 20 to 25 years, even though uh, there's been a lot of, you know, money and, and research that's been poured into this, trying to understand, you know, mechanisms, uh, so on and so forth. But if you look at the last, you know, 20, 25 years, like injury rates across the board, whether that be adolescent athletes, collegiate athletes, professional athletes, really actually hasn't gone down at all. And I have a few uh, kind of underlying theories as to why they might, why that may be and definitely want to chat about some of that stuff so yeah exciting topic gets me going spent a lot of time during my master's and phd and my postdoc you know really studying this injury from a lot of different uh perspectives i can talk about acl injuries uh for hours and hours and hours i really get on some tangents with, with some folks so i'm excited to, to have a chat here about it dive in man where do you want to start yeah sure let's uh i think probably the best place to start is kind of walk through the the history of 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 the injury and kind of what our initial thoughts were, uh, and then kind of how, as we progress through through the injury, looking at it, you know, from various research perspectives, kind of where we're at now, at least kind of where I, I view the injury and my mental model and heuristics and kind of what I see uh, going forward. So you got to kind of start back in like uh, the mid-2000s the mid is where you start to see uh, from an, when we're talking about this, I'm talking about it purely from a non-contact standpoint uh with the contact injuries there's just a lot of other extraneous why don't you variables. go ahead and define it for people sorry to interrupt you yeah yeah okay yeah, for sure for sure so non-contact acl injury uh typically defined uh as an acl injury once there isn't any direct contact to the knee or this or the surrounding uh areas there uh but that can also include uh an, an injury where an athlete gets like bumped in the upper extremity and it still leads to uh an acl injury so you have i guess that's still called kind of, non-contact though, right? Right. It's it typically called indirect contact. So three kind of classifications. You have your, your pure contact injury where a running back runs through the hole, lineman dives into him, boom, ACL tears. That's, that's one that uh, there's just a lot of extraneous kind of factors. Then you have the second one where it's like your indirect contact. So athlete goes up for like a rebound, gets bumped in the shoulder, lands, and then ACL pops. So not necessarily a direct contact to the knee or the lower extremity, uh, but still contact nonetheless. And then the third one is just like your pure non-contact injury. Wide receiver goes uh, across the flat, 
catch the ball, decelerates, boom, ACL tear. Similar to like kind of Odell Beckham's, I think, from a couple years ago, where wasn't any sort of contact, lower, upper extremity, just a pure non-contact. But from a theoretical perspective, and this is where a lot of this research has, has come from, we think that the indirect and the non-contact ones are the ones that are quote-unquote preventable. <laughs> Whereas your, your contact type, and we'll get into, into that, the whole injury prevention side of things. And, uh, but the non-contact ones, there's just a lot of other factors. A 300-pound lineman dives into your knee, like that's there's not really much you can do at that point, but you could also make the argument that uh, you could potentially, you know, through some different strategies, have athletes avoid those types of situations in the first place. Uh, but that kind of gets into a, a whole nother uh, tangent. But yeah, that's kind of the the classical, I guess, classifications of of ACL. Uh, so I've spent my time uh, pretty heavily on the on the pure non-contact, but also too getting into some of the indirect contact. Uh, as well, because that's things that our athletes are going to experience a lot. They're still going to get bumped. They're still might not be to the knee itself, but there's still perturbations that our athletes have to have to navigate, whether that's soccer, basketball, football, so on and so forth. No, I 100% agree. And I had a colleague who he was working with women's lacrosse, and one of his girls, sport, yep. she got pushed from the back, like she yep. was going to get a ball, pushed from the back in a, in a penalty, like it was an illegal contact. But her knee, she wound up tearing her ACL, and the uh, athletic trainer was like, oh, that's a non-contact injury. And he's like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, had that girl not gotten pushed in the back, that knee injury never would have happened. Like, sure. Yeah, that one we would define as indirect. So in, in, indirect like, But it's contact. not indirect. Like, they directly right. got hit. Sure, sure, yeah. Yeah, for sure, for sure. That's just how it's, it's yeah classified by doctors, and, right? Like, that's, right. it all trickles down from, like, okay, what a surgeon would call it, right? Right, right. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, within the history of it, you know, you started talking about the 2000 and non-contact. Like, when was the different classifications? When did it start? How, how are we going about with this? Uh, I think you really started to get those classifications kind of later on in, in that process. It was okay. the early 2000s research. It was just really like the pure non-contact injury, right? Athlete goes to do a sidestep cutting maneuver and boom, ACL, ACL tears. Uh, th- those are sort of the ones or like the jump landings too athletes going up for a rebound, no contact at all, and then, you know, land, ACL pops. So that was really kind of the, the first kind of goal is, like, the pure non-contact type of injury. How can we, one, uh, you know, predict predict the injury through various assessments and talk about some of the inherent limitations there, and then also, two kind of coinciding, okay, if we could predict, then in theory we could prevent, and then what are some, I guess, preventative, you know, strategies that we can do. So early 2000s research, you started to see a lot of like jump landing biomechanics research come out, you know, tests like the drop vertical jump, the landing error scoring system, some things that some of the listeners may be familiar with and have implemented before. Uh, you know, and some of that research, at least initially, was pretty heavily focused in the adolescent female population, because that's where you see a lot of ACL injuries. And that kind of gets into a whole other tangent about how females may be at higher risk for males. A lot of people, you know, speculate it could be anatomical, could be physiological, uh, could be hormonal. I actually don't really buy into any of those three uh, because if you look at, you know, a lot of this research, it's female adolescent athletes as a whole, and I'm being very general here, don't necessarily have equal training opportunities as, as a male adolescent athlete for a lot of reasons. You know, uh, you know, there's, this, there's still some stereotypes about female athletes, you know, weight training and the frequency in which they do it. Uh, but if you really look at a lot of these, 
early studies, they don't necessarily uh, control for training age. And they look at, you know, male versus female risk factors, and females have more stiffer landing strategies or dynamic valgus. But we've seen through, you know, tailored training, a lot of these risk factors sort of kind of get mitigated. So that's kind of, a, yeah, it's a whole separate uh, tangent there. But uh, essentially they were starting to look at, okay, what are some assessments that we could do that could identify athletes who would be at a higher risk or predicting, you know, ACL non-contact injuries. And so some of the research in the early 2000s, again, looking at a couple of those tests, drop vertical jumps, landing error scoring system, uh, tests that, you know, in theory would be great to roll out for a full football team or for a full soccer club, things like that, to where I could do this test, I could screen, I could say this athlete's at high risk, this athlete's at moderate risk, this athlete's at, at low risk, uh, for injury, and then we, you know, we provide our interventions based on that. Like in theory, sounds great. Uh, and there was a there was a particular paper that came out on the mid 2000s uh, that did identify. So there's there around 210 uh, adolescent female athletes. They were from some different sports: basketball, soccer, a couple of like your more classic jump landing type of sports. I think there's volleyball in there as well. Uh, nine of the nine of the athletes did end up going on and sustaining a non-contact ACL injury. And then the remaining part of the cohort did not. So you had your, you had your group there and you had your, your larger group that didn't. And what they found is that of those nine, uh, the dynamic knee valgus moment was significantly higher than in the non injured cohort. And that paper really started to, uh, you know, funneled through, got a lot of recognition. What paper was uh, that? This is the Hewitt paper in 2005 out of the American Journal of Sports Medicine. Uh, you know, if readers are interested, uh, definitely can, can provide the, the citation, things like that. But that was really the first paper uh, that started to get at, okay, here's a potential mechanism of, of a non-contact ACL injury. And I think since then, uh, in 2005, like, that's really the thing that people look at, right? It's like, okay, where's the dynamic knee valgus? Where's the knee valgus? We need to train out of knee valgus. Hmm. Like, athlete, demonstrate that. Oh, boy, that's a red flag. Um, and so what, uh, and that really, like I said, that's about, about 2005, so about 18 years ago, around that 20, 25 year-ish range. And ever since then, that's really been, uh, from a grassroots level, you talk to parents, you talk to some coaches and stuff. That's what they'll tend to go to first is like, okay, when I see an athlete and they, you know, have the knock knees or things like that, they're like, oh boy, that athlete's at a high risk or that athlete needs to be trained out of that. Uh, and for better or worse, some of that has still kind of stuck around, uh, but as you started to read more of the research, and there's been follow-up studies that have done similar types of analyses, different different, age, different ages, different athlete cohorts, uh, and they've done similar tests too, drop verticals, other sort of like sidestep cutting, things like that. Uh, and what we've started to see over the last 15 years is those uh, other researchers who have done these, again, prospective studies, longitudinal, looking at those who did end up sustaining a non-contact versus those who are injury-free, your control cohorts, actually haven't really been able to replicate those initial findings. Really? In terms of, yeah, in terms of dynamic knee valgus or any sort of uh, knee biomechanics actually being uh, predictive of future uh, non-contact ACL injury events. Uh, so I would so say, why is everybody saying that then? I think honestly, uh, just that was that was kind of the first. And, and one of the things too is like knee valgus is very easy to see, right? Like it's something that from a macro level, a coach can identify, a practitioner, someone who doesn't have experience can see. Oh yeah, that person has has knee valgus. Boom, that's something that I can easily see, and now I can try to quote unquote train that athlete out of it. That's where I think a lot of that comes from. It's it's very easy to see someone who has 
knee valgus or bad, you know, knee biomechanics, so on and so forth. Um, so that's where I kind of think like that was something that someone could latch onto very easily and say, okay, that person's at a high risk. I can visibly see their knee valgus when they do any sort of drop landing or, you know, jump cutting, all that sort of, all that sort of stuff. That's why I think it's, it's stuck around because it's easy to see, but as I'll kind of talk about here in a second, the sensory motor aspect of it is you can't see it. Like you can't see someone has a bad working memory. You may be able to kind of glean a little bit, but you can't necessarily macroscopically see that compared to someone who just has bad biomechanics. That's where I think, uh, you know, I kind of took off. But as I was saying, like the studies that have followed that uh, really haven't been able to identify knee valgus or any sort of knee biomechanical variables uh, that were predictive. So I'd say, you know, you're looking at it as a whole in terms of ACL injury biomechanics and predicting future events. I would say about 90% of the research actually says that it doesn't. And there's a few studies in addition to that Hewitt paper that have identified, but as a whole, uh, the majority of the research hasn't been able to identify uh, knee biomechanics as, as future predictors of ACL injury. And I think there's a few reasons as to why. Uh, one is, is just the types of tests that are being done in these environments, being non uh, sport specific, being very, you know, sterile types of environments. Uh, like you're, we've all, we've all done drop vertical jumps, you're right. We've all done that test. You hop off a box of a 30 meter, a uh, 30 centimeter box. You jump down, you, you cue an athlete to jump as high as you can. We've all done that test. We've all, you know, we've seen, we've seen that test, but it's a bilateral type of test, right? Where one, if we reverse engineer, you know, the actual ACL injury, very rarely does it happen in a purely bilateral uh, type of movement. It tends to be more unilateral dominant, whether it's a jump cut or whether it's a jump landing. Uh, so that kind of one is, is kind of a major kind of red flag with an assessment like that. It's like you don't tend to see uh, non-contact ACL injuries occur in a purely bilateral type of maneuver, which a drop vertical jump is. Uh, so there's that. And it's also too is, um, you know, this kind of gets into more of the sensory motor aspects. Like when you watch an athlete in a non-contact ACL injury, whether on the football field, soccer field, one of the main things that you'll start to see when you're picking up from a more mechanistic standpoint is their focus of attention isn't actually on, you know, how they're performing the movement. It's on the external environment, where the defenders mm. are, where they are in relation to the field, whether they're near the out of bounds, uh, boundaries, where their teammates are, like you start to watch it and you start to see they really tend to be externally focused. Whereas when you do these types of assessments, the it tends to be more of an internally uh, dominant task where there's no there's no focus on anything else. It's just the athlete. Okay, I'm going to drop off the box now, and then I'm going to land, and then I'm going to jump up. Like that's that's where the focus is. And they've tried to kind of mitigate that through like hanging like a ball or some sort of apparatus and say try to reach the ball and, and jump up. Uh, as high as you can to try to get more externally focused driven uh, if, you're, if you know folks are familiar with some of the motor learning research that's out there but still at the end of the day like it's a pre-planned task you step off a box you land you jump up whereas in sport we know that that's not the case 99.9 percent .9 of the time our athletes are, are are often having to be reactive to the environment as opposed to you know this idea of being uh, everything being pre-planned so that's that's where I think a lot of the, the disconnect comes from uh, is that, and I've been in these lab environments, you know, I've gone through a master's in biomechanics, gone through a PhD in biomechanics. I've conducted research similar to this in biomechanics lab. So I fully understand that side of things. Uh, 
but also too now being a practitioner and being in the field, I can kind of see this injury from both sides. And, and it's tough too, because, you know, from a research perspective, this is a much easier way of doing it and being able to screen hundreds and hundreds of athletes through being able to do your biomechanical analyses. But at the end of the day, that sort of research hasn't really moved the needle. It hasn't provided clinicians and practitioners with very useful information in terms of these are the injury screening assessments that we can potentially do to try to see who's at, who's at risk. These types of assessments that we've done classically hasn't, hasn't moved the needle. Um, and so that's kind of started in, you know, full disclosure. Like when I first got into ACL injury, uh, late into my undergrad, into my master's, like I was fully kind of on board with the biomechanical aspects of it. I, I you know, I was in that line of thinking of knee valgus. We got to train out knee valgus. This is the main one. But as I started to read more of the research, uh, you know, it kind of changed my mental model. Like I don't necessarily think that this is the end all be all. I think there's something different. Uh, and kind of a little side story here. It's actually when I started to get into to more concussion research is mm. when I started to make the, the connection between the idea of the brain and how that potentially influences and downstreams into an injury like this. Uh, so just a little side note here. My, my PhD research was, was looking at the relationship between concussion and non-contact lower extremity injuries and potentially oh. the mechanisms as to why. Okay. And what sports? There's a lot of, uh, I was in, uh, my, my last couple studies were in a couple different sports. So football, soccer, and volleyball, some of your more heavy concussion sports. Mm-hmm. And then I did a couple studies with adolescent athletes, uh, when I was out at UNLV. Um, but essentially what the research was at that point with concussions is that post-concussion athletes were at higher risk for ankle injuries, knee injuries, uh, your non-contact type of injury. Uh, and so I started to read that research, the injury, injury surveillance research. I was like, huh, this is kind of interesting. I wonder if folks have ever tried to look at like a mechanistic link between a concussion and then a non-contact ankle sprain or, uh, an ACL type of injury, things like that, meniscus injury. And really at that point, back in 2018, there hadn't really been a lot of research out there that looked at it from a mechanistic perspective. So that's what my PhD research was focusing on, some of the biomechanics, but then also some of the neuropsychological aspects between sport concussion and then future risk for a lower body injury. Uh, But then I started to think as I was going through my PhD and finishing up there, I started to think, okay, what if you remove the concussion from the equation? You know, athletes haven't had a, hasn't had a concussion history. What are some of the some of the neuropsychological sensory motor aspects that may just play directly into a non-contact injury such as an ACL. And that's when I really have just started. And this is probably back in 2020 ish, 20, yeah, about 2020 ish is when I really started to just focus on removing the concussion. And I still have a lot of interest in the concussion non-contact relationship, but removing the concussion from the equation, what are some of the sensory motor aspects that may be driving, uh, you know, this relationship and ultimately may be, uh, you know, a better way of going about thinking about mechanisms for, for ACL injury. So that's kind of how, kind of how I've walked through, uh, you know, my own scientific endeavors and research about, you know, this, this ACL injury. I was initially on that pure biomechanics train, uh, but I just, I thought as, as kind of I've studied the injury more over the last, you know, six, seven-ish years, uh, there's, I think there's something more that we need to tap tap into uh, that can start to help us start to reduce the risk of this injury and start to see these injury incidences uh, decline. And, you know, full disclosure as well, ACL injury, uh, in my opinion, is probably the most uh, complicated injury we see in sports medicine. Uh, There's just so many different factors that could potentially get involved in a non-contact. It may be anywhere from the surface on the field, the weather, 
you know, prior injury history, you know, current training. There's just, there's so many different factors and, and folks that try to say, you know, this is the mechanism or that is the mechanism uh, is just way off base and, and quite frankly, providing just really bad information uh, and trying to sell people on like, okay, this is the, this is the cure all catch all thing. It's just, it's so complicated. Uh, but I think, you know, and, and this is where as the research evolves and the science evolves, you can take different aspects of different strategies and interventions and hopefully combine those aspects together to create a comprehensive program. It's not easy. Like it's not easy by any means. Um, but that's just kind of, you know, my, my thoughts. And I try to take a, a very 30,000 foot view on, on this injury, uh, just because it is something I'm very, very passionate about and, and love to study. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, I just think there's more to it than just your, you know, your knee valgus or doing a drop vertical, a drop vertical jump test. I a hundred percent agree. And the way that my athletic trainer and I, um, <clears throat> the way that we would assess anybody that came in, we would look at, like he would do a orthopedic screen and look at their joints sure. and how they would yep. move. Um, sure. just, you know, kind of following any of the FRC principles, like, Hey, if your hip doesn't move, you don't have a hip, blah, blah, blah. There's going to be issues. Right. Then we would look at uh, our lower body assessment of jumping. We would do a single leg vertical with a double leg yep. takeoff, a single leg um, drop jump off of a nine inch box to yep. a double leg landing, and then a single leg broad jump to a double leg landing. And if we yep. saw two out of the three with an asymmetry, we're like, hey, there's something going on here. Now sure. that was purely looking at physical. It was not looking at sensory motor. Right. You dove in the... One of the things, though, that you mentioned, though, and that, that's important there, is you did a lot of that unilateral. Yeah, all of it unilateral, unilateral with a double right. leg land. So that way, right. and that's where I think a lot of people get this stuff wrong, where they make it a single leg. Like he, Kyle would also do a single leg takeoff to a single leg land, yep. could, you know, just to check the boxes because that's what the prior research has, but also just as a different way of collecting. But I was like, nah. And this is from where DeMarco and I worked together at Iowa and we'd always bounce ideas off each other. It's like, look, I want a double leg land because I don't want them to worry about how they land. I want them to do maximal power production, let them land on two so we can see how powerful that leg really is. Now, right. none of that dials the sensory motor in and you're the expert in it and sticking with the Kier Wyndham flat ratio. You've noted the, the issues with it. What do you recommend to all of our listeners out there? Like what would be the the Jason a test or like what you come up with something flashy for, but like, what would you do? Yeah, sure. And there's, and there's, and this is where, like where the research is, you can, you can be creative and in, in fitting, like what are the going to be the demands of your athlete, right? Like an American football athlete versus a soccer athlete. Shit within athlete. American football, all the different positions. No. Sure. Oh yeah. 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 Like, for sure. For sure. Um, one of the things that, that we've started to explore, uh, you know, again, you kind of reverse engineer, uh, you know, the, the injury itself. And when does it tend to happen? It tends to happen uh, when an athlete's more in like a deceleratory maneuver, yeah. right? Like they're going to do a jump cut or they're going to do a jump land. It's more in that deceleration uh, phase. So there's, there's ways that you can be creative in terms of your screening. What I would recommend to, you know, practitioners in terms of doing more field-based uh, screening assessments is I would do it both under uh, a pre-planned scenario, and then I'd also do it under uh, a reactionary scenario, unplanned scenario, because where this starts to get into is this idea now of sensory motor. So like, say for example, you're gonna do some sort of deceleration test, like the Damien Harper type of test where- Don't know what that is. I don't know, don't if know what that is. Yeah, what is it? Okay, yeah, yeah, people, if folks don't know what that is, uh, 
essentially there's uh, like a 15 meter buildup and then there's like a five meter deceleration zone where it's a, it's a, it's a pre-air sprint out and then you're into this deceleration zone and you're decelerating as quickly as possible. Decelerating and hitting a line like a, like a, the 505 it, test or like you sprint 15 yards and have to stop before the five yard mark. You have to start, you have to stop before the end of the five yard mark. And are you measuring how fast somebody runs in the 15 so that way they're not cheating it or what? Because I've you seen can, yeah, things like – Yeah, yeah. Just, you can use timing gates or, or yeah, GPS yeah. technology, things like that. So that tends to be more of a pre-planned sort of scenario there where an athlete starting builds up, boom, the deceleration starts right at that initial, that okay. initial box part. But then you could also make it unplanned as well where they're, you know, they're accelerating out and then you still have – you know you may have like a, a larger deceleration area, but they don't start the deceleration until there's some sort of external cue, whether that's auditory or visual. Now, how do you control uh, for the randomization? Because I hear what you're saying. Like, hey, it's still a 20-yard right. drill, right? Right, Except right. they knew by the 15 to slow down. Like, how do you control right. for the randomization of if you're going to run a bunch of athletes through it? And how do, you, how do you measure it? Are you videoing it? What do you, like, what are you doing? How do you recommend it? Right, right. So a couple of different things. From a, from a randomization uh, standpoint, I would say what you're going to have to do there is you're going to have your cueing is going to have to be similar. Using a whistle, be, like what? Could be auditory, could be visual, and there's going to be a little bit of, of of variance with within that. But that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world because you're going to see variance on the field as mm. well. It's not going to be standard. Um, but really, the the main aspect there is. You want to see how an athlete decelerates under a pre-planned scenario and then also how they decelerate under uh, a more reactionary scenario. And then, two, kind of getting to your point, Justin, uh, a couple different things there is video analysis is going to be, is going to be helpful here. You can get that from sagittal plane. You can get that from, from frontal plane as well. And, of course, if you're trying to add, um, you know, some sort of a cutting task to it as well, it doesn't necessarily have to be a pure deceleration, a pure you know, vertical, uh, anterior, posterior type of test. You can also add a medial lateral component to it as well. Um, but that would be, kind of be, I guess, a recommend. And like I said, you can be creative in this as well. It doesn't necessarily have to be that sort of assessment. Uh, if you wanted to do like a flying 10 uh, and a cut to the left, cut to the right, two of those are pre-planned and then two of those are going to be reactionary where there's a cue here and you got to cut to the left, cue here, you got to cut, you got to cut to the right. Um, how would you score it though? That's the thing. Cause like, I agree with you. Like, yeah, you right. know, there's okay. You can make a pre-plan not. And then it's just like, okay, in terms of maybe it's messy and you don't score it and it's qualitative research, not quantitative. Right. I, I hear right. what you're saying with that. Right. Um, and then the, the other part of my brain is I'm like, okay, we talked off air about, okay, there's already a lot of work on strength coaches plates. And now your plates, like right. who's going to filter through it. Is it you? Is it the AT? Is it the strength coach? How are we filtering through? How are we going to then communicate it? How are we going to, yep. is there an intervention to improve it or not? Cause it's just standard training. Like all these thoughts are going through my head. What do you think? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I'm going to be a little bit biased here because we do have a sports scientist in house and in a group of in a group of folks to help out. It really is uh, going to be a, and I think ideally this is in collaboration with you know sports science, strength conditioning, and and sports medicine. With one of our teams going into the summer, uh, we actually will be uh, rolling out a pretty comprehensive uh, assessment with myself uh, in our in our sports medicine group and our strength group for this particular team on campus. Uh, we'll all be collaborating, collecting the data. Uh, but yeah, it really, it's going to be, it's going to be bespoke to, to your environment and what's going to allow you, you know, to collect, you know, as much or as, you know, as, as much data as you think is going to be needed. 
but like Dos Santos actually has, I could you know provide a link here of more of like a jump cutting quality quality assessment form. I can provide a yeah Dos Santos uh, in what year? Uh, this is pretty recently. Uh, I want to say 2021. Uh, nice. Don't quote me on that necessarily. Uh, but yeah, you know, it depends. Honestly, Justin, it's gonna it's gonna depend on you know what you have in your environment. Like here, uh, we do have a lot of different technologies. Every bell and whistle, sorry. Every sort of bell and whistle to be able to collect you know more granular type of information, like yeah, yeah. in terms of like deceleration testing. Like we can look at different phases of the actual deceleration with our GPS technology. It provides us some good insight into like what's an athlete's you know maximal. Uh, deceleration abilities, but then also to pairing that with with high speed video, uh, and then to looking at th that from a qualitative, so a quantitative and also a qualitative standpoint. But I do recognize like there are practitioners in the field and listeners who may not have access to that, but it will take a little bit of of creativity. It's not impossible to do. Uh, it's just going to have to take a little bit of ingenuity and and thought. My my whole thing from this is like, you just want to remove the athlete from the pre-planned type of maneuvers. You know, the pre-planned drop vertical jump, the pre-planned, okay, I'm going to do a 5-10-5. Like, it's just not what an athlete's going to be exposed to on the field, and it's not going to be where the high injury uh, risk events are going are gonna to be. It's going to sure. be under these chaotic sort of conditions. Uh, and I kind of liken this to, uh, you know, some of the things that we do in, in the weight room, like in terms of, like, how weight room things translate onto, onto the field. Like, our strength barometer, our strength metrics, things like that. Yes, it's not exactly sports specific. Like a squat is not sports specific. Uh, you know, things like that are not necessarily the most sports specific things we do in the world. But we're trying to train the underlying qualities of, of the athlete to hopefully that stuff translates on the it's same thing with a lot of these sensory motor uh, type of tests. Like, yes, like if we use like a smart board type of technology, obviously a smart board technology is not going to be something that an athlete is doing on the field, but Correct. we're trying to train some of these underlying qualities from a reaction standpoint, a working memory standpoint that hopefully have a bit of translation to what an athlete's going to experience on the field. I can talk a little bit about some of the other training interventions things too, uh, if that's something that you think the listeners may be, may be interested in. Yeah, no, let's, let's talk about the, the different interventions. And I mean, sure. I guess the biggest question that everybody's asking and that, you know, people want to hear is, is ACL injury preventable? Like, is it preventable with these contact, non-contact? What are your thoughts? Uh, end of the day, like if you were to ask me straight up, are we going to ever find a solution to prevent ACL injuries? No, we're not going to. Uh, it's just, it's, there's so many factors that play a role and you get into some of the dynamical systems theory aspect of the injury where these different parameters interact with each other and they're, and they're changing. Uh, no, I don't think we'll ever get to that, that point, but we can provide a more comprehensive solution so that on a, on a macro scale, we can reduce the risk of the group. That's kind of what you're trying to get to. Yeah. But uh, from a prevention standpoint, no, it'll, it'll never happen. From a prediction standpoint, like a pure prediction, uh, probably not, no, uh, probably no not going to get there either, but that's, that's okay, though, because from a, on a group level standpoint, we can still provide best practices and still, you know, hopefully uh, reduce the risk as a whole. Uh, but from a training standpoint, you're looking at it from a couple different ways. Like, obviously, there's been some more technologies that have, that have come out. You have your sensory boards. You have your stroboscopic What are stro uh, like for anybody that maybe doesn't have them? Like, what are those things? Yeah, yeah. So there are so eyewear. There's a couple different companies that, that make them. And essentially, they, they flicker at different frequencies. Uh, and an athlete can wear them, you know, on field, you know, whether they're a soccer athlete, basketball athlete, 
can wear them in, in pretty sport-specific uh, types of environments. Where that's helping out is, like, a couple of different things, like focus of attention, uh, you know, whether it's, it's central, peripheral vision, uh, working memory, different, different sort of aspects like that. Uh, reaction time, obviously. Is so, like, somebody's role. wearing the glasses, and it's, like, opening, closing, and they're playing yeah. soccer or whatever. Yeah, now, exactly. Now, if somebody doesn't have the money, could you tell them, like, hey, y'all, we're going to do this linear tempo run and just blink your eyes a bunch of times? Is that <laughs> yeah. right? Not, like, is, not, nece- not necessarily. Is that better um, than nothing, though, is my question. Like, is that a little bit better than not? Potentially, if an athlete can sustain a high frequency of blinking <laughs> while they're doing any sort of high-intensity task, I do get what you're saying, Justin. But um, so there's that type of technology, but there's also some of this sensory board technology that you start to see out synaptic, other types of technology. And I've used some of these different texts uh, through grad school and some other and other labs that I've been in. Essentially, they're just trying to train some of these underlying qualities, like your reaction time, how well you can process information, your inhibitory control, like I need to react to this stimulus, but I don't want to react to this stimulus, something that you would see like on a football field or a soccer field, where there are certain stimuli on the field that an athlete, we don't want them to react to, but there's certain stimuli that we do want them uh, to react to. So if you have the means and you have, you know, obviously budgeting plays a role into this, like some of these technologies we've started to see have been helpful from training athletes from a sensory motor aspect. But again, that's more of like, if you have the funds on the research side, but on the practitioner side, you know, me being realistic in our environment and other environments out there, where I think the best thing for the buck and there has been some, I can send some links uh, to this as well. I can't necessarily remember exactly who was publishing uh, this, but small sided games are where you're starting to see, uh, some interesting research come out there in, in improving some of these underlying sensory motor aspects. So 1v1 drills, 2v2, 2v1 uh, type of training. A lot of this uh, early research has been done in soccer where you see a lot of these, you know, small-sided games, things like that. Uh, but we're starting to see some of these more field-specific training tasks or, tr- you know, training environments that we can put athletes in, uh, improving some of these underlying sensory motor qualities. So that's kind of like from a practitioner-friendly standpoint, it's going to be these small-sided types of games where you're manipulating the spatial constraints, you're manipulating the temporal constraints uh, on the field. And this is where athletes are having to react quicker. They're having to be more efficient uh, in, their, in their processing of information, their inhibitory control. Uh, and that's really, again, going to be a sport-specific thing that a practitioner has to, one, reverse engineer the demands of the game, and then how do we put them into these small-sided game type of environments where we're manipulating the spatial constraints and the temporal constraints that are hopefully driving and improving some of these underlying qualities. That's where my biggest recommendation now for a practitioner looking for something that I can do on a team perspective. I don't have technology. I don't have a budget to, to, to invest in this. It's going to be small-sided type of type of games. It's going to be your best bang for the buck. Now, it, what kind of games, how would you have people do that in their – off-season training as the strength sure. and conditioning coach, and then how would you have them make recommendations to the sport coach? Because that's the other age-old question that everybody's asking is, right. how can I get this to be implemented by the sport coach so that way right. they don't hurt the athletes? Yeah, sure. Uh, and what's what's nice about like soccer, for instance, is this is already pretty. This is already pretty. Prevalent. Soccer seems like the best sport to work with. I, I have yeah. not worked with soccer, but they seem to get it from like. Right, reading right. the tactical periodization book, listening yep. to Frank talk, like they seem yep. like they get it. Yeah. So, and and, then, and and honestly, like from a sports science perspective, like European soccer, you know, some of the in the in the eastern eastern parts of the world, like they've done a really good job 
and that's where a lot of the influence comes in the American collegiate setting is from, you know, the professional soccer influence in, in Europe and other places. They're really dialed in with, with a lot of this stuff. Um, so soccer is a little bit easier just because that's more prevalent in terms of small-sided games is, is part of, you know, our tactical periodization and some of the things that, that we do here at Clemson and some other places too, where that's already micro-dosed within athlete training. Um, but for some of the other sports, uh, like, you know, American football, for instance, I think it, it really comes – and there's, there are some folks that have started to, you know, implement some of this similar type of training in, in American football. Uh, it really comes down to, uh, you know, having that conversation with, you know, the sport coach and saying, look, this, this type of training can help our athletes react faster or make better decisions. Because at the end of the day, we're not going to talk about – underlying sensory motor qualities to it to a sport coach that's not their expertise that's <laughs> they not don't their, want to talk to us about that, anything to be that's that not, cool that's, yeah that's not their domain but you got to kind of give them you know gross uh over generalizations is like this type of training can help our dbs make quicker decisions and can help our running backs you know when they're running through the hole make a better decision like that's the sort of thing that and the sort of information the conversation that you have to have uh with a sport coach but really you're just trying to under your your underlying uh, uh, your underlying role here is to try to train some of these sensory motor qualities. Really, at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to one from a visual perspective, our athletes to better recognize the stimuli that's in front of them or that's coming crashing down to the side of them, and then two, that's that's feeding down into the decisions that they're going to ultimately make. Because a lot of this sensory motor stuff that I'm talking about really comes from the eyes, like visual attention, visual fixation, perception uh, is really driving a lot of the cerebral cortex responsible for 40% of the cerebral cortex responsible for visual processing of information. All of this information that our athletes are seeing on the field, it's, it's coming, it's starting, in, it's starting at the eye. And so is injury down. prevention, could this injury prevention, we know that's not a real word, but ACL, right. we, you know, right. the original question was ACL injury prevention. Is it, right. Is something as simple as like, hey, training the eye to track and training the eye to be able to process information? Like, well, that's where if you start to if you start to really dive into it, a lot of these types of devices, training strategies, like it really is, it really are, you know, more visual dominant type of tasks, right? Like your strobe eyewear, right? What's that? What's that influencing? Your visual attention, your visual focus, your smart board types of technology. They're seeing, they're seeing it, and then they're reacting to it. So a lot of it is driven through the eye, but then two reverse engineering the ACL injury. If you watch some of the video analysis and researchers have started to do this and you, you know, kind of go on your own tangent and look at different types of non-contact injuries that are out there, the common theme is that they're not looking at their knees. They're not looking at the ground. They're looking at what's in front of them or what may be coming toward them. They're trying to catch a ball. So like their visual attention is, is often elsewhere. But from my thoughts and, you know, my heuristics, it's if we can get athletes to, one, be better visual processors of, of information and being able to see, you know, what's relevant, what's not relevant, uh, you know, react quicker, then that's going to put them in potentially scenarios where they're not at these high risk for injuries or you're seeing these quote-unquote faulty types of, of biomechanics. Because at the end of the day, if our athletes had enough time and enough space, they could do any sort of task they want in a very low-risk environment. It's when the spatial constraints, it's when the temporal constraints are severely constrained on an athlete, that's where you see these these types of injuries. And that's what these idea of small sided games are really trying to get at is you're micro dosing and progressing the temporal and the, and the spatial constraints at the end of the day. So you can start more, you know, more in large type of, of scenarios where you do like 
5v5 type of drills or 5v5 plus one. And then you can start to, to make the spatial and the temporal constraints a little more restricted. You do more 2v2, smaller spaces, 3v2. Uh, so you're trying to microdose that and really dial in to where an athlete has to make these just rapid, rapid decisions. And they have to really be, be dialed in. That's at the end of the day what this type of field training is, is trying to do. It's not really, not really anything super, super fancy or anything like that. You're just manipulating time and space. That's all we're, that's all we're attempting to do. We talked off air about, you know, the things that you, you know, would recommend or literature, like what would be some more things that you think our listeners need to know or like sources that they could go and find? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And a personal plug, uh, I've published some of this research, some reviews that have kind of looked at some of the sensory motor neuropsychological aspects, Uh, you know, prior injury. One of the first papers actually that came out on, on this, on this type of work was all the way back in 2007. Uh, a guy by the name of Buzz, Buzz Swanick uh, published a paper that looked at, uh, I'm sure some of the listeners are familiar with the impact test, pretty common concussion assessment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that student athletes will do, you know, first year they come in as a freshman or first time they come in as a, as a high school freshman. Uh, and what they found there, uh, there was a, a group of 200, oh God, I, I've been, I'm going to blank on the exact uh, numbers here, but I think there's about 200 athletes total in this cohort. 100 that had a non-contact ACL injury, and then 100 match controls. Matched by sport. Prior? Matched pretty pro- What's that? How long prior? How long? What do you mean, how long prior? So you said they had 100 of them had an ACL injury. How yep. long? So before, this was, like, it, was a, it was after the, the impact testing. It was after the concussion test that they did. Oh, so like did an impact test, got an ACL injury. Yeah, exactly. And they were matched to a, they were matched to a similar athlete that completed the baseline assessment that didn't have an ACL future ACL injury and what and I can link this as well this is all the way back in 2007 so like 16 years ago and then we started some some folks started to look at it what they found on on that test was that the ones who did sustain a non-contact ACL injury worse reaction time worse processing speed and worse working and worse working memory uh compared to the group that that was you know quote unquote injury free going forward that was all the way done back down in 2007, and, and, but, and I can share a couple other papers that, that Buzz has published. He's done some really insightful work and has really kind of influenced my understanding of, of, of an ACL injury and some of the mechanisms involved. We'll link that as well. And then there's been some other follow-up research, and I can <laughs> – another personal plug and some work I did with, with adolescent athletes uh, fairly recently uh, where we had, uh, we had athletes uh, preseason go through – uh, the attention network task. And I'm not going to get into the, the specifics of it because it's kind of hard to explain orally. Uh, I can, when I send the link to the papers, you can see what the, what the test actually was. Uh, while we weren't looking specifically at ACLs because we didn't have a large enough injury database of, in, of, of ACLs, we did find that uh, worse attention uh, on that task was associated with a higher risk of non-contact lower extremity injuries. So that included some ankle injuries, some other knee type of injuries. Uh, and there's been some other folks too uh, that have also published in uh, similar similar types of work. So that research is definitely not to the level that we've seen the biomechanics of ACL injury or the strength aspect of ACL injury, but we're starting to dive more and more into it in terms of, you know, neuropsychologically from a sensory motor perspective, what are, what are the mechanisms? And once the body of research starts to catch up, I think that's when you'll start to see more and more intervention type of training, which I've done a little bit in the past from – a virtual reality standpoint, an eyewear standpoint, uh, so on and so forth. So that's just, we're still kind of 20 years behind the biomechanics 
uh, of the injury. And like I said at the very beginning of, of our chat here, Justin, is you can see knee valgus. You can't necessarily see someone who has bad working memory, like on, on the field. It's a, lot, it's a lot more difficult to say, oh, yeah, that athlete has, has bad processing speed or that athlete has bad visual, visual fixation or visual processing. But I can easily see an athlete who has really bad knee valgus. So that's where I think uh, when you start to add the brain to the equation, it just, it just gets a lot more uh, complicated. But that is to say there's, there's some exciting research that's being done, and I think, I think we'll be in a better place as more of this, more of this line of work starts to come out. Yeah, no, I mean, that was one thing listening to you talk. I was like, man, is it the unintelligent athlete that's going to get hurt more because they can't <laughs> process and think about things? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I suppose you could, you would kind of, you would kind of think about it, uh, maybe from, from that lens. But, uh, I think at the end of the day, uh, we're just, we're trying to understand, like, and you gotta think about it too, like elite level athletes, tear their ACL. They're strong and they're robust. They have, some of them have good biomechanics. Some elite athletes don't have good biomechanics, uh, as we know. But uh, I think it starts to kind of peel back more layers. And, and two, I'd recommend folks just, just go watch these non-contact ACL injuries on YouTube, things like that. There's some high profile athletes who have, you know, we, we've all seen and things. Watch where they are looking visually and look at what's, what's around them. Don't necessarily focus on the knee itself. Just look at their, where their attention is. And you'll start to really see it's like they're not focusing on how their knee is. They're not focusing on landing. They're not focusing on doing a drop. Which is so annoying because that's what I feel like a lot of practitioners will be like, okay, when we're rehabbing, like pay attention, pay attention. And it's just like you can't. You can't overly cue an athlete like knee injury or back injury. Like, oh, unwrap the barbell. Make sure you're at. It's like they're going to have chaos when they're playing their sport. And that gets into the whole return to play uh, progression too is where you want to start. Uh, microdosing this in as well. Obviously, initial part of the injury, it's going to be a lot of pre-planned scenarios. The athlete's just not ready yet to, to do that. But as you start to return to the field, you start to get into your return to running, agility type of training, that's when you need to start dosing in these reactive type of scenarios when an athlete is returning from an ACL. Because, you know, unfortunately, we can provide the best practices, but we're not going to be able to prevent all of them. And then an athlete, and this gets into another really interesting line of research in that when an athlete does tear their ACL, there are quite a bit of neuroplastic changes that occur in the brain just because Ooh. the ACL is, yeah, and that gets into a, a whole other bag of worms. Uh, someone, uh, one, of my, one of my previous colleagues, Dustin Grooms at the University of Ohio, has done a lot of work on this, uh, and you see these neuroplastic alterations occur post-ACL injury. Just because the ACL is, is, such, a, is such a sensory motor powerhouse in the lower extremity and is responsible for a lot of this you know, proprioceptive feedback, uh, when an athlete does sustain an ACL injury, uh, you need to be extremely cognizant of how, when they get back onto the field, you're introducing some of this chaos. And Matt Tabiner, uh was pr- most was pretty recently with the Orlando Magic has done some of this work, this chaos control continuum, uh, in terms of how that looks and when you're starting to dose in more of these chaotic environments. Because at the end of the day, like an athlete's going to get back into the chaos post injury. Like they're going to back onto the soccer field, they're going to back onto the lacrosse field. Uh, and you don't want them to be doing a bunch of pre-planned cone ladder type of drills for nine months. And then all of a sudden, boom, we're going to throw them into practice or boom, we're going to throw them into a match. Like that's going to be uh, not leading to potentially a good, a good uh, outcome there. So you need to be cognizant of, of that side of things too. Or if you are dealing with an athlete post-injury, how are we going to start to implement some of these more reactive type of training, training strategies on the field? So that's, you know, that gets into a whole kind of another line, but end of the day, like, 
my 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 thoughts on the injury is like yes we've done a lot of biomechanics you know we we understand like okay we understand knee valgus we understand you know large ground reaction forces like we un- we understand that extremely extremely well there's been millions and I'm exaggerating but there's been millions of papers put out and there's literally probably been billions of dollars now put poured into ACL research but it just hasn't really moved the needle it just hasn't moved the needle in terms of like seeing the incidence of this injury start to go down. And my thoughts about it is like, okay, I started with, you know, pure biomechanics, but I don't think that's the end all be all. I'm just trying to add another layer that may be helpful for, for our athletes here, but then also too for other, you know, other practitioners. Cause I'm, I like to share this information and like to just try to provide good science and good and good research to, to folks. I know there's a lot of other folks around the country, around the world that are, they're unfortunately, you know, having to deal with these, with these injuries in their, in their athletes. Amen, man. Um, I feel like we could talk about this all day. Yeah, I could too I, as well. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I appreciate you, man. Why don't you let everybody know where they can follow you on social media sure. and if they can follow you on any, you know, research gate or where you're putting out. Yeah, your, yeah, your yeah. Uh, so social media is where I'm, I'm pretty active, share a lot of my thoughts, share like relevant. And I stay very, very up to date uh, on, on the ACL. I actually get notifications from uh, from the NIH every week about the new ACL. Because just as, as me now as being a practitioner, not doing super, super a ton or as much research as I, as I used to, uh, I still want to stay up to date because if I find some relevant information out there, I'm going to provide that to our practitioners yeah. uh, and, and things that we can do with, with our teams here at Clemson. Uh, but uh, at uh, Jason Avedesian, J-A-S-O-N-A-V-E-D-E-S-I-A-N, that's going to be my, my Twitter handle. And honestly, that's where uh, I'm, I'm most active uh, and through, through the social media channel. So if, if folks want to reach out to me there and just, I, I use Twitter as like kind of like my running diary, just like my thoughts in general about, <laughs> about, about things, you know, sports science, a lot of ACL stuff, some concussion stuff too, just because I have a lot of, a lot of interest still in the, in the concussion space, but that's where probably folks can, uh, can best connect with me on, on a lot of this stuff. Sounds good, brother. Really appreciate you today and, uh, have a great rest of the day. Yeah, of course, Justin. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I, I like I said, love talking about this stuff and hopefully this conversation, some further things like just help some people out, you know, get them to think about it from a new perspective and, and hopefully uh, provide some value uh, to a practitioner out there who may be unfortunately dealing with this because uh, it certainly hasn't gone away and I don't think it's going away, but at least we can provide some, some helpful, some helpful info out there. Amen to that. I appreciate your time, Justin. Yeah, you too.